This is Art House Roadshow, a podcast on film, faith, and mental health with your hosts, Kyle Myers and Hank Spaulding. Today's episode is a MacGuffin with Hank Spaulding. another episode of the Art House Road Show. Today's episode is kind of somewhere between a MacGuffin and a film review because I will be talking about a movie that is out currently with Matrix Resurrections. A little bit late to the party but uh, due to the Christmas holiday and travel um, and the start of my uh, regular semester job I had to uh, take a break in order to uh, uh, you know spend some free time and rest and that kind of thing. Um, so anyway um, I am uh, a little late on this. Uh, still have the promise uh, licorice pizza review. Um, Red Rocket doesn't look like it's going to happen in the near future just because most of the locations that um, I have access to have ceased to show it. So I, I will probably just be doing licorice pizza sometime in the near future. I'm hoping to get that out next week. Uh, this week, though, um, we will be having another episode of the Art House Roadshow, the main podcast, with uh, Kyle and I discussing the Joker. So look for that around Thursday or Wednesday night. We'll have that pushed out to the feed. Uh, but today, I'm um, bringing you a little Sunday uh, surprise um, with our MacGuffin of The Matrix. The reason why it's MacGuffin and not just a review is that I will be talking about the Matrix franchise as a whole, and so it's a little bit more than a review, but still has a few of those elements in it. Uh, it's interesting. I, I titled this, if you noticed uh, in the podcast title, uh, a, a love note to Intro to Philosophy, uh, because for me, the first time I really began to appreciate films and their philosophical and theological messages that they have was in my... Um, intro to philosophy class that I took in college uh, where we watched this movie um, and discussed in a paper um, whether or not it was a platonic or uh, Cartesian allegory which again it was really really powerful I watched it many years before I, I went to college um, in 2006 and um, I but I, but I um, first watched this movie when it came out in, in the 90s and 99 is when it came out so I had watched it before and just loved it for the action, but um, when I went to college, I was asked to take this, uh, watch this movie with an eye towards a kind of philosophical interpretation, which um, has been something that initiated a kind of different love of movies. I've loved movie, my, movies my whole life, but um, I've never loved um, movies for what they provide philosophically and theologically for reflection. Anyway, um, so yeah, The Matrix uh, was kind of a crucial point to me, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that opportunity in that class to engage in that kind of thinking, and um, and for the professor that first opened my eyes to how, I mean, not just movies, but The Matrix specifically, could uh, be read as a kind of um, allegory for philosophical and theological ideas, uh, though in that course it was just uh, philosophical. Um, anyway, so the year that this came out, it was 1999, uh, the first Matrix movie uh, did, and I, I just want to talk a little bit about the Matrix movies in general, then I'll review the movie that's out right now, The Matrix Resurrections. Um, and so, 
uh, and then kind of give some concluding thoughts about that. But um, I don't plan for this to be uh, super in-depth in terms of the earlier franchises, but um, I, I, I do want to just offer up some things about the first three movies. The first one was this huge kind of uh, cultural phenomenon. It was uh, made by the Wachowskis, um, Wachowskis um, who are excellent directors. They um, haven't had a ton of success um, since... The Matrix franchise came out. They did the the movie um, Cloud Atlas, which was an adaptation of a book, which I love deeply. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful little book. It's a novel. Um, they also did Jupiter Ascending, which did not do well. But this movie, in its original form, really tried to compete with a lot of the action movies of the 90s, which had... Um, big muscular guys coming in with machine guns and just blowing everyone away. And in some sense, like people watch the matrix as a kind of action movie in that variety. And in some sense, they poke a little fun at that in, in resurrections, which is, uh, is fun. But, um, there's a deep philosophical and cultural message embedded within this movie. And I think it's, it's, it's important for, um, audiences to have this kind of experience with these kind of movies. Now, interesting kind of just elements or just kind of, you know, uh, piecemeal stuff that I think is interesting about the movies. Originally, Will Smith was cast as in the role of Neo, which ended up going to Keanu Reeves. Instead, um, Will Smith famously did a movie called, um, or infamously, I guess I should say, uh, called The Wild Wild West, which was a remake of, a, of an old um, 60s show by the same name. Um, and I always, I always wonder what these movies would have been like if Will Smith was the one who played Neo. Um, Keanu Reeves does a great job, don't get me wrong. Um, but Will Smith just has a kind of charisma that I would have been interested to see how he would have, uh, what he would have brought into the role. But I, I still love Keanu Reeves. I think he did a great job. Now, what's interesting is that, and I'm just going to, again, since this is a love note to my intro to philosophy class, uh, just give the prompt. The, the prompt that we had was to explore whether or not the matrix the first matrix movie was an allegory for plato or an allegory for descartes um plato um you know if you've seen the matrix and if you haven't by now uh you know i could give a spoiler uh, warning but in some sense you know you've you've had a long time uh to watch it and so uh, that's on you at this point and so if you didn't want to watch it then you know i don't know why you clicked on the podcast but uh, if, you, if you didn't want spoilers i don't know why you clicked on the podcast but um uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, right? This is one of the more famous things that most students discuss in the in their intro to philosophy classes in college, and one of Plato's most enduring um, contributions to the intellectual Western intellectual tradition, right? And so he, he tells this allegory of the cave, which is supposed to describe reality itself, right? There are these people kind of chained up to these stones, and there's a fire behind them, and Things pass between the fire and the and um, the people, and it casts shadows in front of the wall that the people are staring at. They can't see the animals or or any of the things that um, uh, any of the things that pass by that the, that create the shadows. They only see the shadows themselves. Well, one day one person gets loose and they get up into you know like the real world. And you can imagine if your whole life you've only ever seen shadows. To see the real world is kind of stunning and breathtaking and, and probably a little anxiety inducing just because of how you know for lack of better phrases how real it is compared to what you were given in the cave 
And so the Plato goes back into the, or the, sorry, the, the man who breaks out goes back into the cave and attempt to free his fellow prisoners. And, uh, they ultimately kill him. Now, granted, um, Plato's doing this in the, his book, The Republic, um, which is itself an attempt to try and answer the question, what does the just city look like? In some sense, you could compare this to Plato's teacher, who himself was killed by the Athenians um, for trying to usher them into a deeper, um, uh, I guess, a deeper experience of reality, a different knowledge of reality, of wisdom, that kind of thing. Um, and so, because you know, uh, the... And the, this person who comes back into the cave to try and educate and release and liberate is the philosopher. It's the model of the philosopher, the responsibility of the philosopher is to do that. And so um, that idea um, is central to the Matrix. You have these people who are living in the Matrix, which is a digital program. They're kind of hardwired into it. And so there's these group of people, uh, specifically in the first Matrix, which you see is uh, this character named Morpheus who is trying to track down... Neo, who is played by Keanu Reeves, Morpheus played by Lawrence Fishburne, um, and they uh, he wakes him up, right? He he tells him the reality that he knows is false, and he's trying to um, he's trying to wake him up so he can see reality for what it really is. Okay, I think that's a, a really cool thing that's happening with, within that movie. This kind of experience, right, of the truth of reality, and so. There's, a, there's an overlap here, too, between another philosophical concept called the experience machine. And this is something we pose in philosophy classes all the time, right? Uh, and the, it just goes like this. Um, if you had an opportunity to be plugged into an experience machine where everything would look and feel absolutely as real as your waking moments on this planet, uh, but you could have every fantasy fulfilled in your life, you'd only know happiness and joy and things like that, uh, would you ultimately decide to do it? You wouldn't be living, you know, a real life in the sense of like you wouldn't be participating in the world around you. It would all be kind of fabricated, contrived, but you wouldn't know any different. You would just experience this reality for what it was. Um, would you do it? I ask this to all my questions, all, all my students in my intro to philosophy class every year. Um, and it's really interesting because, you know, it plays off of Plato's cave right because you have this idea of these people like choosing the cave right they'd rather have the contrived reality the the lesser reality um in their case in the cave it's not necessarily filled with pleasure and joy it kind of actually intensifies the problem like now okay you're not just seeing shadows on a cave wall now you actually can live your every desire that you want inside of this experience machine um and it's funny because in the movie in the matrix they actually say that an earlier version of the matrix um, create uh, they created it as a perfect paradise, but humans rejected it because it was too perfect, right? Um, and it's interesting just to kind of backtrack a little bit inside of the Matrix. Just I'm assuming most everyone knows the story um, of the Matrix, but just in case you don't, the reason why the Matrix exists is because humans uh, created an intelligent form of uh, technology that became kind of self-aware, like Skynet and Terminator. Uh, and enter, entered into a war with the humans, and the humans attempted to, um, uh, you know, knock out the sky because they uh, felt like, you know, if they could cut the machine's access off from the sun, they would all die, uh, but that didn't work. They just found new ways of, um, uh, new ways of kind of creating energy, and the way that they found was they uh, basically uh, grew, grew human and used them as batteries. Uh, if you know anything about the human body there's a 
um, significant amount of electricity that is required for the human body, for lack of a better word, or like what could be transferred into electricity in the human body. And so um, they harness that by growing humans and then they basically use them as, as batteries. And so there's just these fields and fields and fields of, of humans that have been um, grown for the sake of being like Duracell batteries for the machines. And so uh, the machines are trying to destroy the last bit of humanity and humanity is trying to defeat the machines. And one of the ways they do that is they go into the matrix and they wake up humans to join the fight and, and battle against the machines, right? And so this is a kind of the problem that's given in the first matrix movie. Um, but you know, the interesting pieces are you've got this idea of the waking up from a false reality, a shadow world of the matrix into the real world, which is now a bitter wasteland because of the war that has happened. Um, and you've got this idea of the experience machine that humans, because a lot of people, when I ask the question, would you be plugged into a machine and experience every pleasure that you could have? You wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't remember anything um, in your previous life. You would just live your life entirely in the machine and be completely happy and, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, most people say they wouldn't do it because it's not real, right? They value authentic experience. And so in some sense, that's reflected in the fact that the uh, the people decide they want to um, wake uh, they want to uh, wake up or they rejected the perfect version of the matrix and so the machines created a different version of the matrix which is fallible people struggle and it's awful right and so that is something that humans expected that kind of strife and that's something they went to um, and so that's kind of the Platonic element because the whole point of Plato is he's trying to illustrate the, the way the forms work. The forms are those eternal realities out beyond kind of time and space that are the most fundamental um, realities that form and shape existence, right? There's the perfect form of, of everything, right? They are eternal, immovable, all that good stuff. Um, but everything here on this earth is mutable and changing and, and, and finite. And so we need to ascend to the world of the forms in order to live a more uh, truly just um, life. And, you know, his whole point is that the philosopher king, the one who contemplates the form, is the one who should be in charge of the city, right? The republic, so on and so forth. And so um, I actually wrote my paper on the second prompt, which is about Descartes. Now, Rene Descartes, he's a modern philosopher, kind of the father of modern philosophy. He takes basically, and this is the way I explain it to my students, that the idea of the forms and kind of puts it in, in the mind, right? Everything that's true about the human is inside of our mind, right? You know, the, if you've ever heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am, that is Descartes. Um, and the whole point that he's making is that, like, he, um, uh, like, he's, he's, he doesn't know, and he's, again, this is a perfect analogy with the, the Matrix about whether he's asleep, if he's, ever very, if he's ever had a very vivid dream, he's not sure if that's real or when he wakes up that's real if you've ever had like a really intense dream you woke up and it took you a couple of seconds to be like where am i what what's happening is this real or was that thing that i just experienced real and so for him he was a uh, doubting the uh, ability of experience and the senses to uh, communicate to us um, reality for lack of a better phrase and so he uses this idea of, of the mind as a way of saying okay well i can't trust my senses i can't trust what i see but even when I boil it down to just like all the way back to like thinking, can I trust thinking? Okay, well, something could be contrived. But even when I'm thinking, there's this kind of thinking thing that's there, right? That sounds kind of mind-numbingly weird, uh, probably for most of you. But the, the long story short, that's where he gets the idea of I think, therefore I am. Because I am a thinking subject that thinks. And even when I'm thinking, I'm doing the thinking on the thinking. 
um, I am nonetheless thinking, right? And so that is the most fundamental thing about us, and ultimately that's the most fundamentally real thing about, or about the world, right? Is the fact that we can think and are thinking things. And so, you know, there's several scenes in the, in the movie that kind of make you think about this, right? The, um, uh, you know, they, Morpheus asks Neo what's real, for example. Um, you know, and for example, one of the things that later in the movie comes about is like food, right? Um, and so there's a sense in which this, like if you're talking about the, the feelings that you have, the food that you like the taste of the point that morpheus makes is that well all you're talking about is really just the way that the nerves fire in your mind and so that seems to support this i think therefore i am paradox um since everything is downloaded into neo's brain throughout the movie like that's how he learns kung fu and where that famous line i know kung fu comes from is because it's all just a cognitive kind of um information in log right downloaded into his brain and that's the center of the most real thing about neo and human race and there's another analogy here in two with descartes um with the idea of the spoon there's this um scene where neo goes and visits this character called the oracle and the oracle kind of gives him some news about his role and his life <laughs> in the um matrix and things like that and there's this child who is dressed like a monk and He's making this spoon do all these crazy things. Um, and he kind of gives Neo this speech. He's like, you know, I, I realized that it wasn't um, the spoon that was moving. I wasn't making the spoon move. Um, and he says, well, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, there is, there is no spoon, right? In the Matrix, there's no spoon, right? And so when you realize that the spoon doesn't, isn't there, it is actually just your mind that is moving. Right, and so again, that is the collapsing of the think. Therefore, I am. Anyway, I wanted to give you there that kind of uh, just brief philosophical overview of those themes in the first movie because I think that again, this is a love note to that, and a really important film for me. Now, there were two sequels to the Matrix: The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. Um, they were kind of uh, hinted at in a, an animated Matrix movie or like a series of short films that were combined together into the Animatrix. Um, the kind of main problem that the, the latter two movies would address uh, were uh, brought up there in this kind of the finally like um, all the humans remaining humans live in this one city called Zion near the Earth's core where it's warm. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the world above the, the surface level is uninhabitable to humans and is completely dominated by the machines and so they decided to move into the Earth's core. How they got there, who knows. They don't really cover that. But the machines for years have been trying to get access codes into Zion, um, and they never can. And so they finally just decide they're going to start drilling indiscriminately from the surface, which means that, you know, they're eventually going to hit um, where the humans are at. And so, um, anyway, they, they, they start to drill down to um, Zion. And so part of the, the kind of the animosity of this movie is of the latter two movies is the kind of like, what do we do about this? And there's the people that want to raise a, you know, want it to be a military response, but there's also this faith element too. Neo is an important character. Keanu Reeves is an important character, as you probably know from watching the films, because he was, uh, this chosen one. He's the one who should, you know, in a platonic sense, be waking everyone up. This kind of messianic figure who leads people into uh, a new way. He can control the matrix itself from inside of it. Um, 
And so he's this important figure. He was uh, apparently like one of the first people that started waking people up in the early stages of revolution against the machines. Uh, and then he died, and there was a prophecy that was given that his he would reemerge in the Matrix, he would be born in the Matrix, and so Morpheus would be the one to find him, and he would be the one to save the, mach uh, the humans from the machines. And so there are people who believe that Neo can stop this uh, from happening from inside the Matrix, and there's others who believe we need a military. Um, it's a, a really great se series of movies. I don't want to go kind of in-depth into those, just because I really want to do transition to the... Uh, Resurrections movie here in a bit uh, but one thing I do want to talk about or well a couple things the, the Smith Neo thing the Agent Smith is the main kind of um, protagonist of uh, uh, or at least the the main kind of criminal the protagonist would be uh, Neo right uh, but the main kind of like bad guy for lack of a better term the good the, the evil to Neo's good and things like that um, and he defeats uh, Neo defeats Agent Smith in the first one by, by kind of um, entering into it and kind of exploding it from the inside out with this really interesting, powerful scene, right, at the end of the Matrix movie, uh, right before Neo learns how to fly. Well, uh, Agent Smith sticks around uh, in some form or fashion. He thought he was going to be deleted, but his reemergence in the Matrix after that is really interesting. And he becomes kind of like this rogue program that starts infecting everything, a virus, if you will. Um, so the Matrix is a computer program, Smith is a virus, and so he starts turning every um, program into a version of Smith and infects everything. It's a great analogy for sin, it just spreads. Um, and it gets to a point where even the machines can't control it anymore, and so they're kind of out of control, and, and uh, Agent Smith really just is no longer on the machine side, nor is he on the human side. He's kind of on his own, and he kind of wants to create this perfect reality in the shape of him. And there's this really great climactic battle scene at the end in the second movie. Um, while all these other things are going on, um, that culminates in Smith trying to infect Neo with the virus. Now, what's really interesting is Neo's journey um, is from this place of this reluctant messiah to this like um, this faithful journey to um machine city for lack of a better word and he goes to the mainframe the of the computers and and he says i can defeat smith just plug me into the matrix um and and i'll fight him right uh, trinity his um love interest throughout this film she goes with him dies in the kind of ensuing um trip to machine city um and neo makes it to the mainframe and is plugged in and has this fight well as uh smith tries to infect him and enters into neo's body it's really interesting since neo is plugged directly into the mainframe as soon as smith does that the machines delete neo and and in so doing delete um the uh agent smith right and so he's kind of removed from the matrix and removed everything and so it's this really great analogy for the um the death of death in christ's death right so sin um exhausts the full weight of its punishment on jesus right and jesus absorbs into himself death right by dying but when jesus dies it is not jesus who dies it is even though you know and this is this is an important crucial hard distinction to make um 
God is dead, right, in the on Friday and Saturday, but in the liturgy, the resurrection happens on Sunday. So there's a a time where death um, feels like it is it is one, but um, death is overcome and death is defeated in the resurrection. So the death of Christ equals the death of death, right? And so in deleting um, uh, Neo, it is not, or in absorbing Neo to become Smith, it doesn't lead to the end of Neo, it leads to the end of Smith. Now, one of the more important pieces here, unlike um, the resurrection story, is that Neo does in fact die at that point, um, and because of the sacrifice of Neo, the machines decide they want to live in peace with the humans, and so the humans now can live free in Zion of the fear of the machines. And so it's really interesting, it's a really interesting kind of um, uh, ending to the movie. He doesn't come back, I mean, at least until <laughs> this uh, this movie here, the Resurrections uh, movie that we have, but he stays dead. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a pretty good trilogy. I think it's really interesting. Uh, Revolutions and Reloaded were filmed together. There was a period of time where some films did that. Um, they filmed the sequels together. Um, Matrix did so overwhelmingly good that um, Warner Brothers um, decided to greenlit Greenlight both sequels, um, uh, but anyway, and so we thought we were done with it. They were, you know, I think the Wachowskis were done with it. They didn't want to go back to it. It was a completed trilogy. It was done, and it was good. I thought it was it was good, um, and until recently, now everything is getting a sequel. Everything's getting rebooted. Everything's getting retold because there's nothing new uh, anymore in in Hollywood. And you know, The Matrix is this kind of original film of storytelling. Um, is, is such a, a rarity rarity these days. We don't really get this kind of thing anymore. Most of the stuff is a kind of um, sequel barrage. I mean, granted, there's a lot of stuff going on with Marvel that I think is really interesting. There are still independent films, but really these kind of big-budget, intense, meaningful stories, uh, we don't get a ton anymore that are original, right? You know, there's, there's a lot out there. At one point in time, Hollywood was filled with these kind of things, but um, not so much anymore. Um, well, they came back around, they being Warner Brothers, and decided they wanted to do a Matrix 4. And it's funny, uh, Keanu Reeves was interviewed with, like, okay, what did you say when they first approached you about the role? And he says, well, I'm dead. <laughs> <In> the... <laughs> it's true, because Neo's dead. He dies in the third one. And so how could Neo come back and be in the Matrix, right? And in some sense, I, I think the, the Matrix Resurrections is a kind of commentary on the Matrix itself on the kind of culture of creating unnecessary sequels um, and big, big budget success. I think all of that is, is here in The Matrix. Uh, I, I don't think it is as bad as a lot of people are kind of making it out to be. Um, I don't think it's terrible at all. I think for that reason it, it does a lot of really good stuff. But, you know, I think to the point of the people that are most critical of The Matrix is that there's, there's not a lot of identity. The Wachowskis didn't really come back for this. Only Lana did. And so I think that um the reason and one of the things that actually it even says in the movie and i think this was straight from lana is uh um the person who plays basically agent smith and and keanu reeves as neo um they're talking and and you know basically the whole point is that neo has been reborn into the, the matrix as a video game designer and he actually makes this video game called the matrix and so um it's, it's really funny, Neo being the one who makes this video game called The Matrix is really 
funny, but um, basically he's working on early in the movie when you first see him a new movie or a new movie, not a movie, a new video game. And he goes into the office's boss, which we find out later is the reincarnation of Smith. Um, and uh, yeah, so Smith basically says. Um, Warner Brothers, which is in fact even the, the company that is behind the Matrix, um, is apparently in this fictional Matrix world also there behind the video game. They said, well, if we don't do a sequel to the Matrix, then they won't renew our contracts for anything else. And so this little video game company that made this huge success of the Matrix nonetheless um, now has to um, make a sequel to the trilogy and if they don't, then they won't get any more money to do any more projects that they want to do. And so I'm, I'm assuming that this is directly from Lana, who didn't want to do a sequel to the trilogy, and yet has to, because without it, uh, Warner Brothers wouldn't give um, Wachowskis at all any more money to make any movies. And so they were, I think they reluctantly came back, and a lot of the kind of sarcastic elements are, are a part of that. Um, and so the, the thing is, is that the, the Matrix... Uh, is left off with, um, like, The Matrix, the, the last of the trilogy, you leave off with Matrix, with Neo dying, and Peace with the Machines. And so it was a perfect ending, right? Perfect textbook ending. Um, but I think that this movie does a really good job of kind of describing in very small pieces a, a different philosophical idea than the ones that were um, disclosed in the first Matrix movie, right? And it's, it's this idea of neoliberalism. In some sense, like, it's it's not only what's behind the uh, the kind of angst of Neo having to create a, a Matrix 4, but it's also something that's very relevant to our world today. Um, and a, the real world even in the movie, like the the, the Zion area, right? Uh, the These people of that are still around um, and human in the world... Um, they are dealing with this kind of themselves as well. And so it's interesting is that neoliberalism is basically this kind of capitalism on steroids understanding. Capitalism taking, I think, to its large, its uh, logical conclusion. And so um, basically there's a couple different layers um, to this. Um, the, the real world in neoliberalism is one of kind of these harsh economic realities um and everything's boiled down to that it's about what can make money and what can't and there's this line in the movie that i really appreciate when neo wakes up and he encounters this character called uh bugs which is played by the same actor actress who plays colleen wing in iron fist have you seen that if you've seen that it's a again a good show good and she plays a wonderful character called bugs in this movie um, which is on Bugs Bunny and, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, all that good stuff. Um, so there's a ton of really great references here, but I think this is, she's, she's talking to Neo and she says, the Matrix has a way of cheapening every meaningful experience. And I love that because that's the same thing with neoliberalism as this way of kind of capturing the most meaningful things and trying to, um, objectify it and then also recreate it produce it and make it a kind of commodity to be bought and sold right and so the idea of the matrix movies becoming this video game that one can experience and kind of 
cheap way is indicative of this whole process. But, you know, the whole idea, again, of a sequel after all these years speaks to the same reality because um, it was done, it was completed, it was good, it was meaningful, um, and now we're having to revisit it and revive it. And so it kind of cheapens because it doesn't really recapture the same kind of spirit that the original trilogy did even though it does i think some good work in trying to describe the reality of neoliberalism that we all live in and so inside the matrix you know and i'll talk about three different layers to this inside the matrix inside the real world of the movie right so uh, zion and io which are the cities the human cities there even machine city inside the movie and then how this impacts also just the culture of movie production that we're in right now um outside as, as watchers of the matrix and so those free levels so inside the matrix as neo is trying to recreate or make the new matrix there's this uh really great um almost kind of like brainstorming session where everyone's asking a question what is the matrix and it's basically trying to boil down the matrix to its most cheap parts right in order to try and um how do we recreate it which is the essence of the neoliberal movement right um, and so that's the important thing, uh, and I think that uh, it's it's important for Neo because he's kind of dying a death as he's hearing this because he has to basically like revive this corpse, and which is exactly what happens to Neo and Trinity because they both show up in this movie and it shows them at the end of the Matrix Three just you know being just like uh, broken bodies and they're kind of being like in this kind of really kind of like inverted negative sense of being resurrected they're just kind of being a revived corpse and in some sense what's happening there with the bodies of trinity and neo must be what the wachowskis are looking at when they see their creations being forced back into life right it's a really grotesque scene um like you can see their organs and their you know their bones and things like that being reconstructed artificially and so that line about um, it has this way of cheapening every reality because the meaningfulness of the of the matrix is is uh, is a cultural kind of moment and it's kind of can't be recaptured in the way that um, they're wanting to. But the only reason that they're doing this is a kind of money grab. Uh, Warner Brothers is and so it's interesting inside the matrix them having to do that outside of the matrix. It's it's really interesting in the real world. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Will Smith's wife, who actually um, even though Will Smith. Uh, didn't star in the first uh, movie. Uh, his wife starred in the second two. Uh, she's a fantastic character. Um, I love her. Um, just a really powerful figure, uh, really cool fighter in inside the Matrix, but also an excellent pilot in the real world. She's basically kind of the matriarch in charge of a new human city called Io, which begs the question, what happened to Zion and what happened to Morpheus? Apparently after the events of the third Matrix movie, um, Morpheus was elected to the High Council of Zion, um, and they led into a period of prosperity and things like that. Um, in this movie, some time has passed between the three movies, and Jada Pinkett Smith's character is very old. Morpheus, I think, is dead, even though we don't see him, and one of the classic movie rules is if you don't see him, then, you know, they're not dead. Um, but anyway, the whole point that he, uh, um, that she tries to tell Neo is like, okay, so here's what happened in Zion. Um, Zion and Morpheus had this kind of 
nostalgia and kind of deep faith in what Neo had done and peace between the machines that he could not see the new danger that was arising. The new danger, as we find out, was that after the events of the third matrix, uh, for whatever reason, there was a scarcity of energy in the machine world. Um, there was no longer this plethora of, and I don't, I didn't really get into details of why that is. It might be that something went wrong with the peace between humans and the machines. Like, um, maybe the machines, um, weren't able to grow as many humans anymore, or maybe they stopped interfering with the human life or they destroyed the matrix. And so they couldn't produce any more energy, right. In the way that they once could, they don't really go into a ton of detail on that. And so again, it's just one of those things we, we don't really know why. Um, but either way, there's this kind of lack of resources in the machine world, and Jada Pinkett Smith, there's this flashback of this war going on on the surface between competing factions of the machines, which is really interesting. And so again, neoliberalism rears its ugly head. There's not enough even for the machines, and so they have to wipe each other out. The Matrix is recreated. Neo is a fundamental character to the Matrix, and so he and Trinity are both reinserted into the Matrix, which I think is really important. Um because they see them as foundational figures. There's no Matrix without Neo and the Trinity. Uh, without Neo and Trinity, right? Um, and so, anyway, um, there's there's a sense in which um, that is also something that Jada Pinkett Smith's character fears. Um, so Zion, something happens to Zion, we guess. Again, we don't really know the fate of Zion. Is it destroyed? Is it still out there? Like, is it just kind of in shambles? What's going on with Zion? We don't know. Uh, is that there's this kind of plea for nostalgia. You see nostalgia a lot throughout the film. Like, on Neo's desk, for example, in his video game creator office, there's um, statues of, like, important scenes from the movie. Like, you see a squid there um, from the first movie. And then, um, in addition, you also see at a later point um, uh, Bugs... And it's actually one of the first scenes. Bugs is in the Matrix, and she's she sees this curious thing, um, which looks like the opening scene of the Matrix, where Trinity kind of takes out all these um, um, NPCs and fights some agents and escapes. Where this is the first opportunity the audience gets to see of like what kind of action looks like in the Matrix. Um, so there's this kind of constant plea for nostalgia inside the movie. How many cameos? How many people can we fit back in here? Um, and so nostalgia is kind of one of these movements of neoliberalism to kind of recapture a, a distant past and kind of like idealize it um, and give kind of like a half-hearted um, ability to achieve what has happened and, you know, this, this anger and frustration that we can't achieve it and you take it out and blame it on these all these other scapegoats this is the reason why we can't have it like we did 30 years ago and all kinds of racism xenophobia sexism emerges from this kind of things in our world but nonetheless you see that in the matrix and so you see that inside the matrix but also in io as um you know jada pinkett smith is really struggling to um reclaim the best of Zion in IO, things like that. The major difference is that they actually have machines, like AIs, working with them. One of the kind of cooler pieces is that not only can humans be woken up from the Matrix, so can computer programs. And so they have an approximate presence inside of the, um, the real world, which is really kind of fun. Um, another element um, that's really important inside the Matrix that connects to neoliberalism is this idea of family. They give Trinity a family, it's really interesting because it's not to bash people who want to have families, but the family is one of the 
chief um, pieces of like neoliberal order. Um, and this is a recent kind of trend um, in philosophy is that, and, and Melinda Cooper, for example, writes this really great book on, on the family in neoliberalism today um, that you can all check out. Um, and so in that book, um, basically she uncovers how the family is this kind of central piece to um, who we are as people and um, it's also central to the neoliberal order. It's kind of the perfect icon of the neoliberal order. Everything neoliberalism is points to is to that, and the family is the one that can profit the most, so on and so forth. There's a lot of ideas there. Um, and Trinity, it's really interesting. It's a family, basically, of computer programs, and she's upset at the architect for giving her kids, right? And that's, that's really hard, but she kind of, um, her awakening from the Matrix is this kind of, recognition is like i don't even know if i actually want a family right in some sense neoliberalism seizes on our desires and directs them to it to ends wholly of its own desires you see that in a lot of different places like in the real world for example um i did we really want another matrix movie i don't think anybody was really clamoring for that but we got one anyway and and um or you know just even more simply like just think in terms of the majors that students choose for college these days how much of it is just centered around the idea of like you need to get a job and make money one day um and so things like you know philosophy and the arts and the humanities are seen as less and less viable in our culture in terms of like the uh, careers that they offer because they don't offer money and i think that's really tragic because these things enhance the human experience and are central to the human experience that many colleges have actually done away with their programs altogether and i think it's cheapened what true education can be now it's really interesting um, because one of the pieces of that, of this idea, in all three levels, choice is kind of an illusion. Neoliberalism structures the world in such a way that choice is founded upon certain principles of profit, um, destiny, things like that, that kind of directs our attentions away from ways that maybe we wouldn't otherwise want, right? naturally choosing profit is something that isn't born in our humanity it's something that is learned through observing our culture and that's the same for inside the matrix for the real world and i own zion and the machine world but also in the world outside of it um and so all of these themes are just so essential to the movie in terms of what i liked about it i liked that kind of rejection of this kind of neoliberal capitalism that only sees an experience or a person or an event as a means to gain profit because in some sense the message of this movie is that's what the matrix is being turned into now um and for the watcher who will see that you know they'll pick that up pretty clearly the lana i think did a good job of saying like i i don't really want any of this and this is killing and and, and um cheapening the experience of the resurrection and kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth of the person who really valued the um conversations happening in that first matrix movie um so there's that another element that i really like is this idea of um you know neo looks different to everyone right i think that that's really fun um and like thinking about like the christ figure that he embodies within the culture um trinity actually gets to kind of come out into the center stage here in this movie a little bit more really like that some of the criticisms I have is that I wish that they would have just picked a lane, right? Um, in some sense, that kind of argument, that discussion that they had about what is the Matrix is, is really telling for the movie because 
there's really not one thing that they land on. There's the people who just want it to be a, a big action movie. And in some sense, you know, the matrix tries to do that. Um, others who want it to be something deep and meaningful in some ways it tries to do that, but it doesn't weave it together as elegantly as the, um, first matrix movie does. Um, and so in some sense it suffers from a little bit of an identity crisis because it lacks, um, some clarity on some things. Like we don't get to know about Zion. We don't really get to hear a lot about the events that led to this point. Right. Um, there's some unanswered questions as to um, Neo and Trinity, right? It's unclear what their motivations are. Um, so I think in some sense it suffers a little bit um, from an identity crisis and uh, it could use some more clarity there. Um, and I don't know, I, don't, I haven't heard any news about whether or not they're going to do a, another trilogy based off this. I would highly doubt it. Um, during COVID, obviously this movie came out uh, or this movie was made and, you know, Warner Brothers decided to release all of its movies on HBO Max, and so it didn't make as much money. Um, and so these big-budget films really look for that kind of bottom line. Um, I'm not sure there's much more to explore, like I said. And, um, you know, in some sense, I, I didn't need the movie, but I appreciated the, the good parts of it that it did. Um, I'm interested to see what happens here, after here, but um, uh, I, I liked it overall. I think it had some really good things to say, but it still... Uh, lacked that kind of original sense of, of what it, what the Matrix was um, when it first came out in the 90s and 2000s. But yeah, let us know what you think. Did you do you disagree? Did you hate it? Did you love it? Um, do you think it had more themes than maybe I was able to discuss? I could be here all day uncovering stuff, but um, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, drop us a line on Twitter. Uh, and let us know what you thought, um, and we'll uh, talk to you then. Uh, look for our uh, episode three, the podcast over the Joker, coming up here. Um, this week and then hopefully the following week we'll uh, get a review out of uh, licorice pizza but i hope all of you are well and i hope that you're having a, a good uh, uh, beginning of 2022 uh, technically this is our first podcast of the new year so happy new year everyone and i, I hope that you are well and uh, blessings upon you this is going to be season all right take care bye movie nerds and that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on Art House Roadshow. We'll see you next time.